This episode of Ragcast Outdoors is brought to you by PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Fish on! Hey, Radcast is on! Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. Here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Well, hello, Radio Land. Welcome. We're back on another episode of Radcast Outdoors. I'm super excited to be back in the studio. Uh, the weather has finally turned. Uh, you know, it's pretty crazy here, Patrick. December, and I've been outside in shorts and t-shirts doing, you know, summertime projects. So I had a thing come up on Facebook, and it was your memory from two years ago, and I was ice fishing, and I'm just like, yeah, there's no ice here yet. <laughs> it's pretty crazy weather. It's super warm right now. It's made for a little bit of a difficult fall across the board. Upland, waterfowl, big game. It's it's just been it's been a off year for sure. If you're like me and you like a boat, it's been great. <laughs> but for the ice fishermen, they've been a little bit upset about that. But that's okay. Well, I'm glad to be in the studio, and we have a new guest here with us. Uh, yeah, so we've uh, invited Mr. Jason Matt Singer on to talk about just what he's up to, what's going on. Maybe we'll get into a little bit of conservation and some hunting. So for our listeners who don't know who you are, just give us a quick rundown of, of who Jason is and what Jason's about. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Yeah. So I've uh, born and raised here in Bozeman, Montana. I'm uh, 43 years old now, and I've been doing uh, a show called Into High Country on the Sportsman's Channel and other platforms for about 12 or going on 13 years now. And that's a kind of a 13-part series that's based on uh, hunting Western big game based, you know, right here in Montana for the most part, but we'll travel a little bit all over. And then aside from that, I just, you know, take a lot of pride in working with conservation organizations, helping tell their story, helping, you know, tell the mission of what they're about and help spread the good word there. So that's kind of a brief overview, but that's the most of it, I'd say. So I was looking at some of your films that you've done and I was very impressed. I mean, it looks like you spend a ton of time working on those films. I was it was just really neat to see, you know, the time and effort that you put into those. Um, so I was really impressed by that. So, you know, what is your latest film that you've put out? So the latest film we kicked out was, uh, it be I believe it launched right at the end of August. And uh, it was called Project Landlock. And it's kind of a documentary style film on the history of checkerboarded public lands in America and how they came to be sort of what the future of all that looks like here and what we can maybe do to help. So, yeah, that one, we flew in with a helicopter into a chunk of landlocked public land, bow hunted elk for a few days and kind of documented that. And so you get to see that hunt as you sort of learn about the history of uh, landlocked public land. And there's there's a lot of information. I learned a ton uh, while working on that film and, and excited to share it with, you know, everybody who's interested in learning more, which it's quite a hot topic right now with what's going on in Wyoming. So yeah, I was I was going to mention that there's there's some traction being made as far as and I can see, you know, that there's camps on both sides for sure. But then what what we're talking about for the listeners that aren't fully aware and they should go watch Jason's film and they'll they'll learn more. But in this checkerboarded, there's a couple hunters here in Wyoming that crossed from one corner of public land to another, you know, where four corners meet two private two public and corner jumping. And there's a big question. Is it legal as it's not? And these guys 
I think, you know, they got the, the landowners trying to press charges on them. And they're like, look, we're on public land. You can't press charges for trespassing. So it is a hot topic. What, yeah. What's your well, thoughts? Well, like you say, I mean, there's arguments for it on both sides. I'm a big proprietor of, you know, public land rights. Uh, but uh, also at the same time, I'm a huge supporter of private land and, and the rights around that. So in the end, I, I left the project feeling like there's a lot of room to improve where we're at right now without having to, you know, really infringe on, on either side, just make it easier for both. And, and, you know, I learned that the vast majority of people out there, whether they're private landowners or public, the public, you know, there's, there's a big interest in wanting to make it better for everybody involved. And so, I mean, that was kind of my, what I left feeling with the film is like, there's a lot of room to improve here. And I think there's a lot of people on both sides of the the fence that want to see that happen. So it's exciting. Yeah. I think that there's, there's going to be a lot of discussion around that. I mean, that's a, like you said, it's a hot topic in Wyoming. I know there's a lot going on with state and federal land and all kinds of other stuff too. So, uh, but I want you to talk a little bit about, you know, kind of how you got into hunting and how you got into filming and, and kind of give us the saga of how that went for you. You know, being born and raised here in Bozeman, I was just kind of born right into it. I mean, the community, it still is a very, you know, outdoor hunting and fishing driven community, but it's just a bigger scale of what it's always been. I mean, being born right here, I just just had the opportunity right out my back door to chase all sorts of critters from black bear to mule deer and elk, whitetail. We had a lot of sort of just over-the-counter opportunities here and my family loved to do it. And, you know, I I grew up watching people like Marty Stalper and Gordon Eastman and people like that who were sort of the pioneers of filming hunting or, you know, wildlife in rugged places, I guess. And I just really looked up to those guys. Felt like, you know, when I watched hunting TV when I was younger, you know, I enjoyed it for what it was, but it didn't really represent me as, I guess, more of a Western hunter or how I felt when I was out there. So I just kind of started documenting my own hunts with no real idea of where it was going to land or if it would or what I would ever do with it. But I just knew it was fun. And that's kind of what started it all was just knowing and seeing the opportunities I had in front of me every day versus what I was seeing on TV. And was just kind of like, man, if I just bought a camera of any sort, I could document stuff that's as good as what I see anywhere, mm-hmm. you know? So that sort of the initial drive for me and so that's what I started doing I was guiding at the time and I would carry this little pocket like handy cam with a flip out screen in the hip pocket of my camo pants and uh, every now and then when I would get an opportunity at you know film clips here and there and that's kind of where it all started and then filming my friends and and then once I started not doing the outfitting guiding thing just kind of hunting on my own with friends and family that's where it really took off because I could really focus on that versus making sure my the hunters I were, was guiding were where they needed to be and that kind of stuff. That was really the start of it all. So having got to kind of witness the uh, the outdoor filming hunting industry come to fruition, you know, what's something you see in our sport that we're facing? You know, what's the biggest threat you see that as the years have evolved? Um, the biggest thing I've seen is just the amount of infighting amongst ourselves. I mean, I really always kind of prepared myself. Like, I felt like, you know, the biggest conversations or the hardest conversations I was going to have was going to be with 
people outside of hunting or people against our way of life. And I've come to realize that, honestly, the, the biggest critics and, and the hardest conversations that really hit home the most, I feel like, are the ones with, within our own circles. And it just seems to be getting worse. And it's, uh, I've had a lot of conversations with friends, people I admire, and just very, a lot of opinions out there and not a lot of people supporting other people and everybody questions everything. And it, it's, uh, I would say just the infighting is the one thing that we really need to figure out before we kind of, you know, get distracted in the wrong things and, and mm-hmm. don't pay attention the stuff we really should be outside of, you know, because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you bow hunt or rifle hunt or if you're, you know, a tree saddle hunter or a tree stand hunter or a ground blind hunter or none of that stuff matters and is going to be what's going to keep hunting alive or the demise of hunting. You know, it's the, it's the image of how people see hunting outside of hunting. So it's not... It doesn't matter. We could all decide that one way of hunting is the absolute only way that any of us can do it. We we could all agree, and that still isn't what's going to save it. I think we get so distracted wanting to prove our own points for whatever reason that we're getting lost with the big picture of what's going on around us. The hunting thing isn't my thing. Like I, I do some hunting, but it's not my passion. But the fighting that you're talking about happens for sure in the fishing industry. You know, you have people on Facebook or Instagram or, you know, these forums that I will never visit um, that talk about, well, you handled that fish improperly or you, I can't believe you kept that fish or I can't believe you released that fish or whatever. And to your point, I think you're exactly right. It doesn't help anything. It doesn't help anybody on the outside be like, you know, I really want to be a part of that fishing community or hunting community, right? So if they're reading that, they're like, man, these people don't even like each other. Like, why would I want to be a yeah. part of that group or community? I mean, I don't know if you can speak to that because I know you've you've got quite a few Instagram followers. I'm sure you hear some things. Yeah, I mean, I just think I think hunting is a daunting thing to look at from the outside and be able to take on and. And just so many people that are interested in hunting don't come from a hunting background or fishing and they're trying to learn what they can. And it is very intimidating. And, you know, yeah, to your point, it just doesn't help if they see that. It makes it it's even more intimidating because they're like, well, what is the right thing? I mean, I don't want to come in this, make a bunch of people mad. I'm just trying to learn how to, you know, shoot my first doe by any means possible. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it comes down to really just keeping hunting relevant enough that we win enough of a vote in society to keep us relevant and that's really what it comes down to and all of the infighting is really a bunch of wasted energy in in my mind versus what we could be doing to help further the perception of hunting to make sure it has a place in the future. The uh the statistic gets thrown around a lot that, you know, hunters, all hunters, the saddles, the whitetails, the muleys, the western, the big game, the small game, all of us equate to about 5% of the U.S. population. We are the vast minority, and if we don't have the majority on our side, at least, you know, maybe they don't participate, but if we don't have them at least on board saying, you know, we're going to allow this, hunting will be gone tomorrow, period. That's exactly right, and that's, yeah. So I guess, you know, I think the biggest threat we have to hunting isn't all the stuff we fight about amongst ourselves. It's kind of 
how we, you know, handle it moving forward and make sure that we remind people how important it is that we are there to, you know, conserve the land, conserve the wildlife, pay for these programs that take care of the wildlife. I know there's been a big kind of stir in a lot of people that maybe believe that, you know, hunting shouldn't be on social media or that it's ruining it. And I just, I see that as being a point to a degree, but I don't agree in the fact that, you know, it's the only platform we have to make our voices heard um, that isn't censored. I mean, YouTube's getting more censored. Um, you know, I, I try to license music or work with mainstream media outlets and they hear the word hunting and you're just shut down. So overall, you know, the majority of people out there don't really want to hitch their wagon to hunting. It's too political and too polarizing. And so I think it's important that we do remind people and put these conservation messages out there and make sure people know that who's footing the bill for this stuff and who's paying attention. and and the numbers of people and the, the amount of money raised every year. I mean, I think that's absolutely essential. And I, and right now I just think social media is the only open outlet we have to do that where somebody that's maybe not aware of it could see it. I do agree that with every good post, there's, there's probably one that doesn't help us too, just based on the wording or the picture used. And that's the hard part is policing ourselves and making sure that we're always thinking about those messages as we kick them out there. Because, you know, we are so small as a number that literally every person is a <laughs> an ambassador for the sport of hunting. Every single person's actions makes a difference for the future. And, you know, what people see, what people hear, um, you don't have to have a big following to make a difference. To speak to that point, I, I know a young man I mentored here who started listening to Joe Rogan, and he was born and raised in Wyoming, had no interest in hunting, started listening to Rogan talk about it and approached me and said, hey, you hunt, right? I'm like, yeah. He's like, I want to I go get a doe because I want to eat it. Right. And he went and got a rifle and got a tag and I helped him fill his first deer tag. And that transition, you know, this adult onset hunting is that's how we grow this group. I I mean, whether it's one on one, whether it's through somebody like, you know, Rogan or yourself, I mean, we need mentors. That's that's a fact. For sure. Who was your mentor? Um, I mean, you know, my dad, I would have to say, was, you know, the person that got me out there from the beginning and and who I've, you know, hunted with the most through the years, I feel like. My cousin Nick is also uh, somebody that I've hunted with a lot and respected and guy that gets after it. We've had a lot of good good times together. So yeah, I mean, it, like I said, just the Bozeman community was that way. I mean, I remember growing up going to wild game feeds and they would have the trophy photo contests, wild game recipe contests and taxidermy contests and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's just been a part of my life and everything around it since I was little. So my dad and, and just so many people around me, the community itself is, is, you know, a big part of that. Yeah, for sure. I know Wyoming is very similar in that. I mean, you know, you, if you were in Riverton or Lander, you would experience some of the same things. And, you know, we hold those values very close, but real quick, before we move on with the podcast, I need to talk about one of our sponsors, which is PK Lures, and it is almost ice fishing season. 
I said almost because <laughs> a lot of places aren't frozen yet. Sorry, everybody. But PK lures work all year round. That's the good news. But they really, really shine on the ice. PK just came out with some brand new colors. They've got more skews. They got this really cool PK rattler, which is like a lipless crankbait. And they've got small versions of it that you can use through the ice for walleye, pike. Yeah, I've seen people catch big crappie and all kinds of other stuff on them. So if you haven't gone out and checked out PK Lures, go to pklure.com and you can get yourself some Christmas presents. Maybe buy yourself a present. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, you spend two, $300 on lures. Hey, it's a good day. Just, and you know, they're a small company that started right here in Wyoming. So yep. you got to support local. Yep. And they are based out of North Dakota now. Just got a brand new storefront, 9,000 square feet opened up in Linton, North Dakota. So yeah, help out a small business that's uh, here in the United States. And yeah, go to pklure.com when you're looking for that special stocking stuffer, because I'll tell you those, uh, those lures go great in stockings. Jason, I just wanted to talk to you about this a little bit. I know from watching some of your films, you know, you talk about ethical and sustainable hunting. So what do you see, you know, as far as in the sport, as far as either from a mentorship side or just best practices, things that hunters should be doing out in the field and when they go to post on social media? Well, I think it starts with just, you know, every, your actions in the field. I mean, I've had a lot of conversations with landowners, you know, of all sorts, guys who open their doors to anybody who asks, guys who are in block management programs or, you know, and everything in between. And it's uh, the stories that stick with them or the stories of either somebody who really took the time to let them know how much they appreciate it or the really bad ones. And unfortunately, the amount of people that stop by to thank these landowners or get paying their respects versus the amount of people who sort of burn them in the end is, you know, there's more negative than positive. So I feel like as far as access goes and, and things like that, it starts in the field and just respecting the land, whether it's public or private, closing those gates and, and thinking about things like picking up your trash and treading lightly and, and all that stuff. Cause it does have an impact and with just as many people as there's getting to be in the U S and worldwide. I mean, we really have to, you know, think about those things. And then, yeah, I mean, everything from if you are successful, how you transport it back home and, you know, we're all super happy to show it to our friends and stuff. But even, even in Bozeman now, there's a group of people who don't, wouldn't appreciate seeing a, you know, a deer carcass splayed out on the flatbed of a truck and in their eyes. Um, so I think that trying to be respectful of others and their opinions on it and, you know, trying to treat it as though maybe it's the first time they've seen it. And uh, I think that goes a long ways to right up to posting it. You know, there's been a, so much discussion around how hunters should conduct themselves on social media. And that's a tough one. I mean, I, I'm not going to pretend to, you know, act like I know all the answers or anything. I just, my formula for everything I do is to try to appeal to the guy that's been there and done that somehow, you know, make sure that whatever you're kicking out, like somebody that's even been there, done that kind of guy can look at and go, Oh, that's cool. But at the same time, you know, 50-50, look at it as maybe this person, this is the first thing they've ever seen on hunting in their life, and they've got an open mind to it. So, you know, finding that balance of wording things or showing the picture correctly, and if there is, maybe, you know, 
uh, carcass hanging there or something, just make sure that you try to give some depth to it and help people understand why it means so much to us. It never really stops from the time you're in the field treating every situation as though somebody's watching you to getting at home, taking care of it, and uh, the way it's presented if you do decide to post something. So, Jason, I try and make sure... You know, what I've seen is when I'm posting a trophy photo, we take just a few moments and try and, you know, position the tongue, clean the blood up a little bit and not trying to act like we're hiding anything, but just trying to be a little more respectful of the photos that we do post. You know, it's obviously there's some gore. I mean, you're you're butchering in the field, Wyoming elk or Montana elk. There's, there's a little bit of a some gore, but I definitely think you know, being cognizant of those photos that you post, like you said, maybe somebody's viewing it has an open mind and they want to start hunting. And then because of that one photo they they don't want to anymore. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's just it is it's not just for everyone else. I mean, when you get home and you put that photo on your wall, if it's you and your boy behind his first year or something, I mean, you're going to want to make sure that that, you know, like you say, you clean it up a little bit, make it look nice. You're, you're just going to, appreciate the photo that much more even if it's one you only look at in your house yeah for sure so what was one of your most memorable hunts or trophy photos or or endeavors you went on i mean i patrick has some he holds near and dear i have some i have near and dear that are kind of head and shoulders above the others so do you have one that sticks out in your mind (laughs) that's a tough one i mean i've got asked this question quite a lot and i think i've given a different answer about every single time but it's uh you know it seems like every hunt seems to fill you know fulfill whatever it is you're after at that time you know and so i just went on a hunt here with my dad and my son uh, something I planned and wanted to take them on you know it's kind of one of those where my dad growing up was always the one planning the trips and putting everything together and so I've been busy for several years here and haven't really had the chance to really turn around and, you know be the person to plan the whole thing start to finish for him and and then on the the flip side take my son who's old enough to hunt now and you know that hunt was incredible it was uh it was really a nice reset and just a great end of the season and good time in the blind with me and my son and you know we get to spend quite a bit of time together but it's really different when you're sitting in a blind and nothing's going on and you're detached from you know everything going on whether it's tv or just things in the house to be distracting and so that time in camp and the time in the blind and being able to hunt and have all those experiences i mean that was that was awesome and you know it's one of the best hunts i've ever been on my boy got a real nice deer and my dad had a great hunt and it just couldn't have went better. So, you know, that's one that comes to mind because it's the last one I did. But, it, you know, it was incredible. And I could go down the list of, I went on a British Columbia moose hunt shortly after my mom passed away from cancer. And I'll never forget that hunt because of just so much of the emotion that I was experiencing on that hunt. So the hunt was awesome, but, but you know, there's so much more to it that I remember. And, you know, my sheep hunts and yeah, like I said, I could go on. I feel like they really were what I needed at the time, every single time. And that's just part of what hunting is, is it's just a, a place of peace and a place to reset and 
you know, have fine clarity within your own life and, and really come out of it knowing exactly what you got to do and what's important. And in the meantime, you might just get lucky and bring some food home. <laughs> yeah. I know for Dave and I both, we like to take our kids hunting, fishing, those kind of things, because I mean, you really get to connect with your family and your loved ones and in doing those activities. And, you know, you know, I look at you and was researching on you and it's like, man, this guy's done a lot of different things. And so it kind of, you know, provoked me to think, you know, what keeps this guy's fire lit? You know, what really motivates you to be out in the field and doing those activities? It sounds like your family's part of it and just some of the experiences of unplugging. Is that pretty well sum it up? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, my, I've got two sons, one seven and one 13. So the one, my older one has started hunting here recently. So that's been a new, exciting facet of hunting for me that, you know, cause we're kind of learning together on that end of things. But yeah, I mean, I just, I think just as far as the filming aspect of it goes and the, the t- trying to tell the stories, I mean, it's just, I think it's important that we take control of our own dialogue and, and, you know, it's really easy for people outside of hunting to kind of tell our story for us. And, and that's, you know, part of what drives me is just making sure that I'm always trying to tell a tasteful story that may help create change in one way or the other. I've never tried to make my films about me or the animal or my personal pursuit of those animals, even though I do have personal goals that I set on myself. I just think what's more relatable is bigger stories outside of that. And so trying to always make it about the animal and the country and and tell those bigger messages, I think is important. And and needed. So it, it always drives me to try to look at what are the difficulties facing hunting currently. You know, when I get done with a film, I'll turn around and look at our industry as a whole and just go, where do we need help? Where have we never really taken a stance and taken control of this dialogue? And where can we, what's the next story that needs to be told? And that's kind of conservation side of things, what really drives me to do the next film. So, well, I find it, uh, yeah. Interesting that, you know, you, you mentioned a couple of the, you know, higher level big game hunts, but you came back to the hunts with your, your family. And I, we, while you were talking, I was thinking about the cow elk and the, the doe antelope and the, the doe whitetail that my son and I've gone on in the last 12 months and he's nine, right? Getting him off of the social media, off of the, uh, interwebs and getting him out in the field he's a he drags his feet a little bit you know but once we get him out there and get him dressed up it's yeah the sheep hunts are great the moose hunts are great the big bull elk hunts are great but sitting right there on a on a stand or in a blind or wherever you are with your nine-year-old son and getting to just spend that quality time one-on-one how do you replace that so so when you're taking somebody new and you're trying to film i mean how do you how do you kind of keep both feet in both worlds as producing the quality footage you want, but also having the quality outing, you know, with those, uh, you know, limitations as far as taking somebody new or somebody young with you. Sure. Well, it's, it's kind of funny because my son's first deer hunt, I wasn't going to film at all. I wasn't going to take a camera or any of that. Obviously, I was going to take pictures when we got done and all of that. But when it came time to go, he was like, uh, are we not going to film this? Or, um, 
what's going on? Kind of like, where's your camera gear that you always have when you go hunting? And, <laughs> and uh, I was like, well, buddy, I just want to make sure that, you know, I'm focused on what's going on with you. I don't want to have to worry about the camera and all of that. You know, we got one chance at this. And he was kind of like, I could tell he was a little taken back. Like, um, what is this hunt? Not, you know, cool enough to be on film or what's going on. <laughs> and uh, so it was his reaction, you know, I was like, well, I'll take the camera and if I can, I'll film it. But like, I'm, I want to be focused on you. So that, uh, that formula really hasn't changed. He's shot. I think this is his fourth year now. So my, my idea going into taking anybody new and filming their hunt Actually, this is any time I'm filming anybody else's hunt. Like, when it's my hunt and I'm trying to do the show and this is my, you know, vision or project or whatever, then that's fine if I screw it up because I wanted to get something on film. I'll, I'll take that on my shoulders. But if I'm filming anybody's hunt, then it's like, dude... Don't even worry about me back here. You do your thing. If I get it, awesome. If I don't, fine. But I'm not about to like make you think about what I got going on back here. And so, you know, when I go out with my son or somebody that's, you know, newer to hunting, that's really my mentality is like, look, pack the camera. If things are like going smooth and you got some downtime and all of that, then film. And if you can in the moment, sweet, but. If not, like, just kind of go into it with low expectations that you're probably not going to get the stuff you want to get, but that's not really why I'm there, you know? I kind of treat, you know, somebody else's hunt a whole lot different than my own. Yeah, talk about some of the challenges of filming, because I can imagine just from the little bit that I've seen when... You know, we've had film equipment out on different things that I've been on, fishing trips and whatnot. Talk about some of the challenges of getting good quality shots and just some of the logistics of that. Yeah. It's uh, something we always kind of joke about because, you know, nobody ever really, it's kind of like a sunset picture. I mean, ever, we all know it. Like you could take a million of them and it's just not going to portray the full experience. And I think when you're out there hunting and trying to film it and stuff, it, it's a lot of work to, you know, get one person in the right spot for, for a good clean shot. And then, to get two people at the same time in position for that is it's a lot tougher than you think. And my hat's off to, you know, Ryan who works for me now full time. I mean, he's, he's got, you know, his pack is weighted down with extra gear and lenses and batteries, tripods, and different heads and gimbals and, and, you know, microphone stuff. And, um, so yeah, there's a lot to it to put together something that may seem pretty, simple on television and you know i think it's like you know it's just murphy's law like we will have good connection and good uh battery power on everything and then right when stuff starts to hit the fan you know i'll look back at ryan and he'll be like pointing at my mic at my microphone or something or you know tapping his headphones like he can't hear anything and inevitable that when the moment we've been waiting for happens, something will go wrong with the camera gear at that exact moment. <laughs> it's like <laughs> crazy how much that happens. And it's not just camera gear. It's like 
archery equipment. It's like binoculars. It's like straps. It's quivers. It's everything comes derailed in the moment of truth. It's so funny. Yeah. So I think it's the stuff that people sort of expect to, you know, be tough. You got all this extra gear. It takes extra time to get set up. You know, typically you got to leave earlier because camera light's done. And we all know that that last five minutes or first five minutes will be the actual best, you know, combined 10 minutes of the day. And when you just got to sit there and watch what's going on and not want to spook anything because you can still actually see and they can see you. And you just got to sit there and wait for 25 minutes to crawl out. Um, you know, that kind of stuff can get frustrating. I, I did a film a couple years ago with a friend of mine, Sam Soholt, and that was titled uh, Both Sides of the Fence. And that was just about like pros and cons of hunting private versus public. And, you know, I think a lot of people are quick to judge if somebody they see on TV or oh, Instagram or whatever is on private land. But I think that you know, when you really dig deep and there is, you, you are doing this as a business, like there's a lot of stipulations that come with that. Film permits is one of them. And a lot of times you can't even get film permits in some of these public areas. And so you could hunt them if you wanted to, but you wouldn't be able to film it. And so it defeats the purpose of what we're trying to do where, you know, private land, you don't have to have film permits. So there's a lot of times, you know, that some of the biggest difficulties are the technical stuff, the red tape, you know, can you even get a film permit for where your hunt is going to be at and stuff like that. A lot of people are shocked to know that sometimes it's up to $250 a day to, to film on public land. And, you know, you got to apply for these permits at least two weeks in advance. And a lot of times even sooner than that to try to get the paperwork in your hand before you're, you know, headed out on the hunt. So and I know I uh, spoke with the governor firsthand about this specific issue, right? Because you cannot film in a wilderness area, period. You Even if you apply for a permit and get right. issued a permit, you cannot film in the wilderness. And, I mean, specifically that law was really written in my eyes to stop Hollywood from bringing 3,000 people in and helicopters and tents and trying to film a Lord of the, a Lord of the Rings type movie, you know, in our wilderness areas. I think that's why that sure. exists. Two guys walking around, one guy with a bow, one guy with a handy cam or a GoPro. I mean, that's realistically, Jason, I, I mean, if we weren't filming and I don't like to film my elk hunts at all, just because of all the things you mentioned that it's twice the movement, twice the smell. You, you can't, you know, that there's yeah. this beautiful bull elk, the last five minutes of light and the cameraman goes, I can't see it. And you're like, I, I'm not, I'm shooting the bull elk and we'll deal with it later. So, but I, I hope that the uh, governor can, he, he, he made mention that he was going to try and get it passed that if you were, you know, and there's that stipulation of commercial filming, which, you know, both you and I kind of fall under that he, he was wanting to do it, at least get the law passed to where if you're just a hobbyist, quote unquote, you can start filming in the wilderness. Yeah, I know they've been trying to make some advancements towards that as far as like d further defining those laws from what they originally, how they were worded because, you know, so many gray areas there now with YouTubers and vloggers and, you know, people that are out there 
quote unquote, making money doing what they do, but don't have, like you say, film crews of 200 people and, you know, actually putting some pressure on the, the landscape there. So I, I agree. Like, I, I don't disagree that there needs to be a permit in place, but like, because I don't want anybody to really be able to take advantage of our you know, what's in a public trust without sort of helping contribute to it. It's kind of like, you know, if, if we didn't uh, charge people to go out, you know, cut firewood or cut Christmas trees, I mean, what would the long-term effects of that be? So I just, my whole deal with it is, is like the program, the way that it's set up is it makes it almost impossible to, to really make it work unless you are a, a crew of a ton of people. So, yeah. I mean, if they were just like, you could get online per state and be like, I'm going to be filming on Forest Service for 10 days and the fee is, you know, 250 bucks and you pay that online and print out a little thing and away you go, like, that would be simple, but it's not that simple. Hopefully they can get some things switched around to make it a little easier. And it's, I mean, it's not just filming and hunting. If we, we tried to take a bunch of young men camping and we had, you know, over the number stock of, there, there's a, there's a, you know, kind of a slot of over six head and under 13 head and so many people and you can only camp and we had to get a permit to, to even go. Right. And so that's, there's all these hoops and people don't even, you know, if you just show up at a trailhead to go hiking, you don't realize that this big group has actually gone and had to talk with the forester and lay out a, a, a plan to even just go camping. We're not even talking filming. So one law that right. I can see on the books that I agree with is most states pretty pretty rapidly jumped on kind of banning drones, you know, as far as pursuing game, not filming your hunt, but you know, a lot of these drones have infrared and it, it would be way too easy to send a drone up at midnight and see where 200 head elk are and know where to be first thing in the morning. Yeah. No, I, uh, you know, we never film the same days that we even hunt just because we're, you know, we don't even want anybody questioning what we're doing. But I do value some sweet landscape shots and good drone shots of the country that we're hunting. But yeah, I mean, I think that there's definitely got to be you know, some rules in place that would limit people from using them to scout and using them to, you know, hunt or locate game in any sort of the way. I was filming, I was in Oklahoma. We were getting done wrapping up our hunt, eating lunch, and I put the drone in the air to get some of the landscape shots of the kind of river bottom that we were hunting, and it was really cool. I mean, it's one of the coolest drone shots I've ever gotten. It was just by pure chance, I was flying along and this whitetail buck comes walking right through the screen of my shot. So I get above it and just point it right down at it. This buck starts making a scrape right underneath the camera and doing his whole thing. Could care less, but it's right there. It's like, it is such a cool clip. And mm -hmm. I'm so just like nervous about it because I don't know what people would think about it. Like, you know, it was totally just by chance and obviously going to point it. I'm right there and, and got it. And I wasn't doing anything illegal, obviously, but it's just, you, you don't know what people's perception of that is. And so, cause yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I think there's gotta be something in place against that, uh, using it to actually locate game. Yep, for sure. And I know 
in Wyoming, they've had issues with people running animals at the end of a long, hard winter and they're already depleted. So it's, it's rough on them, but I wanted to change gears just a little bit because I was watching some of your films and I was really impressed with the quality. Um, your films have great video quality. You can tell that you guys spend a ton of time editing great audio. So just talk about that a little bit. Cause I know people, you know, they'll listen to a podcast or they'll watch a film and they don't think about the stuff that happens in the background and make it a high quality production. So talk a little bit about what you do to make those films so great. Well, I appreciate the compliment. First off, it's always challenging to, yeah, sort of make something that you feel like is stands out or is, you know, uh, sets a good bar and something you're proud of. But I think to your point, like I don't, I put a lot of, uh, a lot of work into the sound design behind the films. And just to kind of sum it up, I had one of my mentors tell me a long time ago that you can have a picture the size of, you know, the side of your house with the most beautiful HD images playing over and over with no sound. And you'll only hold somebody's attention for so long. Whereas if you put a set of headphones on and put one of your favorite music albums on and go sit in a, closet and shut the door and turn the lights off you know you could do everything from laugh to cry in the hour that 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 album is on and so i think that just kind of tells you how sound controls human emotion and without you know that that focus on sound i think you lose a lot of what really sucks people in so yeah i would say if there's one thing i put a lot of work into beyond just trying to get the best shots we can and using the best gear we can as the sound design behind it. Yeah. And you know, I took my kids, it was, I guess, right after Thanksgiving, we went to Denver and we went to the IMAX and we watched this film. It was about bears up in the Pacific Northwest. They're like a, they're like a white bear, but they're black bear, but I mean, they're white colored and yeah, the sound was, that IMAX. Yeah. And the sound is incredible that they get, you know, the bear at the beginning, he's kind of taking a nap or whatever. She, I don't remember which, but it's taking a nap and you can hear all the sounds of that and trying to wake up. And my kids were just laughing and giggling because of the sounds and, you know, the expressions and how it all goes together is just so important. And when I was watching, you know, your films, it's, you get some really good shots. And then you also have, like you said, you've got the, the audio that goes with it kind of the narrative that goes with it too is really important and how you put that together. Do you, so for your films, are you hiring like, um, you know, uh, an editor? Are you doing that yourself or how does that work for you? Um, a lot of times with the big documentary films, I'll work with an editor, um, help me kind of co-edit it. I'll, I'll sort of build the framework and most of the time, you know, they're not, it's not somebody that is a hunter themselves. So I like to build the framework stuff that I think is interesting and captivating. Then he'll, Andy will take it for a while and, you know, put his two cents in really question me of why anybody would care about this or why this should be in there. And he'll, you know, tweak it a little bit and then I'll take it back and, you know, put the final edits on it. So, you know, I really like that because the conservation films are, are really intended, you know, kind of like I said in the beginning of this, I would like people who are the the diehards of whatever the film is about to appreciate it and enjoy it and be proud of it. But, um, you know, I want the people who have never seen anything about it before to, 
really be sucked in and captivated. So I think involving a team of people that can really look at it from a lot of perspectives is important when it comes to, you know, the the storyline and the the dialogue within the film and, and everything attached to that. So yeah, it takes a takes a big team in the end to put these films together. I mean from you know, the partners like RMEF or Wild Sheep or, you know, Mule Deer Foundation and then my other partners that, uh, you know, support these. It starts there and them believing in the mission and the project and, and uh, giving me the means to do it and then surrounding myself with the right people, whether it's, you know, I use certain camera guys to film the hunt. I use certain camera guys to film the, the B-roll, the interview stuff. I use people to help with sound design, help people to help me organize my thoughts into a tangible storyline. And, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of levels of bringing that to the table for sure. Well, I, I can certainly appreciate it. We took our first attempt at, at filming and producing something and it, it was, I mean, the, the amount of work that goes in behind the scenes, Patrick alluded to it earlier whether it's a podcast or a film or i mean i couldn't imagine a feature length you know hollywood level movie of that many intricate pieces i mean we're talking we've got kind of one topic one species one mission and and that's you know you're you're not days doing this you're months if not a year into doing a film right oh for sure yeah um in fact the next project is a film called selective that I'm working on with the Wild Sheep Foundation and uh, Boone and Crockett Club and and some other partners, and it's uh, it's based on the history of trophy hunting. And that film actually stemmed three or four years ago is when I came up with that concept, kind of presented it, got the uh, got partners in line to help me bring it to life, and. <clears throat> You know, we started filming, writing the whole works for that, and then the Canadian border was got closed. Um, I was supposed to go on an archery doll sheep hunt in the Northwest Territories, and so that's been two years. I haven't been able to get up there. So, in other words, you know that this particular project has been several years in the making, and and it's still not. We're not even going to be able to film the hunt portion until next July. Um, and then of course it's going to take us six months to edit, produce, break it down and tangible, you know, so, but I, I, it's all part of the story, you know, you could never script it that way, but I think what's gone on in the world since, um, we came up with this is important part of the puzzle that we'll have to tell throughout this next piece, you know? So anyway, yeah, absolutely. Well, changing gears a little bit, I mean, you've been eating wild game for many years. You've harvested a lot of different things. And one of our favorite things to do on this podcast is ask you if you could have and eat any of those animals, which one would you pick and what would the recipe be? Well, I think, you know, right now I have antelope, whitetail, mule deer, elk, moose, bighorn sheep, and bear in my freezer (laughs) and it's hard not to go for the elk most every time um yeah but whether it's steak or burger i just i really like the flavor of elk and then you know i don't know you 
uh, one of my favorite recipes with those which I cook at uh, for guests a lot and do it uh, the wild game feed I do every year is the uh, jalapeno elk poppers. You know, I take a little bit of elk tenderloin and do the cream cheese poppers and grill them up, wrap them in bacon, and it's pretty tough to beat that little uh recipe that that happens to be my favorite as well (laughs) yeah david's sitting over here like yeah i know that one (laughs) (laughs) so just real quick back to the uh the the filming a little bit you know when we filmed our our film that's out there you'll have to go watch it you know it takes a a life of its own it becomes your child it's near and dear to your heart you know and we just we put it in the uh, western hunter film expo and we actually got into the final round but we didn't win and i'm you know I, I still like my film. That, that's all right. But I was sure hoping this last couple of weeks to, to win that, that little competition. Heck yeah, that would have been awesome. But it, it, it gives you the drive to, to strive, you know, and I, I'm, I'm picking it apart. What can we do better? And, you know, you can watch in the film, I'm talking to the cameraman and he's like, I'm like, the blue light's on the mic and the mic wouldn't turn on. He's like, it's okay that the camera will pick you up. And I mean, it picked us up, but it's, it's one of those, right. I mean, the Rams laying right there, we're getting ready to, to take him and the mics aren't, the lapel mics aren't working. So I, I appreciate you bringing that up that if it can and will go wrong yeah, well, in the field, it will. It happens with podcasts yeah. too. We've lost a couple of good podcasts because of equipment issues. And it's just, it's always a heartbreaker when you lose something good, but no doubt. I wanted to ask you about this too. I mean, if you were to go out tomorrow and you could only hunt one species, you know, what would you go after? I mean, you've, you've done a lot of different things. So what's your favorite one to pursue? This is kind of like that question. Um, <laughs> what, what's your most memorable hunt? Right. Um, it's a really tough one for me. I mean, gosh dang. You There's know. nothing like a pheasant flushing up your leg, but it's pretty exciting when a duck cups in and commits to the decoys. However, when you rip a bugle and you get a bold answer, or if you're rattling and a whitetail steps out, it's it's <laughs> such a hard question to be like, oh, no, it's this for me. And some guys just, you know, for me... I, if, if I had to pick one, Jason, it's, it's elk. I mean, now I don't think I could just pick it, but if, if I had to sure elk. So what, what do you, if you had to pick one, you only get one the rest of your life. What is it? It would probably be elk as well. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, I've, I've answered that question before. Like, well, my favorite hunt in the spring is bear <laughs> and uh, before that looking for sheds. And then my favorite hunt is, August is archery antelope, and then September is elk. Uh, October is like, you know, start of mule deer. November is like that mule deer whitetail rut that sees hot. Then you got December's lions, um, wolves. You know, it's kind of ever-changing. But if I had to pick one, it would be elk. I mean, sheep are an amazing animal that I am absolutely infatuated with. But I think, you know with my experiences hunting sheep, like, and I've hunted, you know, arguably one of the best units in the entire lower 48 states or the world for that matter for bighorns, Rocky Mountain bighorns. And I mean, you got to look over a lot of sheep to really start to see the differences or pick out, you know, the one that 
really catches your eye or I guess, you know, they, it's like antelope in a way, like they're all different when you really break them down and you really get a chance to study them, but they all kind of look the same. Whereas like elk, I mean, you know, they are, they're all, there's a lot of unique different bulls out there and there's a lot of unique bugles to the bulls and, you know, the way that you have to approach certain bulls and the attitudes they have and, and I think a lot of that comes out in elk that, that uh, yeah, it just keeps you keeps you in the game all the time. You're never satisfied. It's like I was talking to a buddy this year, and he goes, so I was chasing a big bull the last few years that I had become pretty obsessed with. And he got killed this year by uh, a hunter here in our state. And my buddy was like, man, how bummed are you? And I'm like, well, I'm pretty bummed, but I can promise you that I will be obsessed with another one next year. <laughs> you know, yeah. like big bulls coming, big bulls go. So, yeah, it's fun to, to, you know, see them and get on them. But, you know, I'm happy for the other hunter and I can promise that I'll become totally obsessed with a different bull next September. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, when you get that big bull next September, we gotta we gotta segue just for a second and bring up one of our sponsors. It's it's actually my favorite sponsor. Don't tell the other ones, but uh, <laughs> High Mountain Seasoning I use all the time. They're right here. They're local. They're a great company. And I mean, whether you're making just burgers or poppers or fish, it it really doesn't matter what the protein source is, and it doesn't matter you know what your cooking utensil is, whether you're using the smoker, the barbecue, the grill. The, the stove, the oven, it, they have something to complement whatever you're cooking and how you're cooking. And it, go to, you know, highmountainjerky.com and they have hundreds of different blends and spices and, and everything to prep and make from jerky to sausage to pepperoni to, I mean, we do pigs and ham and bacon. So, yeah, they've got something for everybody. So go to himtnjerky.com, um, check them out. I think one of the best things you could do is buy somebody a Christmas present of a bunch of seasonings, especially if they like to grill. I mean, they, they have some amazing burger and steak seasonings that are just so good. So you can go to their website and check that out. Um, so Jason, I did want to talk to you about this a little bit here at the end. Um, just like, you know, you've done a ton of different films and they're all really cool. I've, I've enjoyed looking at the ones that I've been able to watch. I've got a few more to go, but what's next on the horizon for you? What's, what's in the planning stages or kind of some things that you have in the works that you want to do? Well, I uh, spoke a little bit there about that next project. Um, I've wanted, I've, I've always felt like we've never really taken the bull by the horns and addressed the whole argument against trophy hunting from kind of the outside community. So, you know, the topic of my next film is going to be, the history of trophy hunting, where it all started, why it basically lended itself to the most successful wildlife conservation model in the history of the world, like where, why it was ever perceived any differently than just this beautiful, amazing thing that's good for all wildlife and, and kind of what the future is and what we need to do to sort of change that and the perception of it. And so, you know, working with Boone and Crockett, working with the Wild Sheep Foundation. Uh, the reason I thought it was important to involve Boone and Crockett is they were the original score, you know, scoring system. So they developed, you know, what could be perceived as trophy hunting. 
But what a lot of people don't know is that that scoring sheet isn't about the individual who killed that animal at all. And it's not a bragging list for individuals and where they rank. It's just merely a data record that we can use to prove to people in our own country and people in other countries how successful this North American model of wildlife conservation has been. And we can. You know, we can look at the records every year. We're killing, you know, it might be a new typical whitetail world record of muzzleloader or, you know, the new archery elk world record or, you know. And what people don't see in in the background, the, the proof in the pudding is you have to have great genetic diversity and a really robust population to be able to keep breaking records year and year after year. You can't, you know, it's. That, that that means that, that it's a healthy population to produce those trophies. It's not an unhealthy population that's doing that. Exactly. It, it, it's a document. It's a moment in time that's documented when the habitat was healthy enough, the herds were healthy enough, and that animal reached its full potential. You know, that's really what we're trying to document with that list. And so... And you look at private yeah, um, whitetail ranches or even the North American model in Africa, you know, you go to these places and they have a minimum you have to meet before you can harvest that animal. And the reason they set that minimum is not that for, for no other reason than they want a healthy genetic population to continue next year. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And so that's where the I feel like this film is important as we've never told that you know, on a very palatable um, platform for people that don't understand it to kind of get it. And so, you know, part of it is the word trophy kind of sets people off. And so I know moving forward, people like Boone and Crockett, Hope and Young, Wild Sheep, other, you know, organizations would rather see the hunting community use the word selective selective hunting, you know, because that's really what we're doing. It's not about the trophy and that's what a lot of people think because that's what the word is. So we kind of, that word, uh, trophy is taboo across all platforms. I, I like, I like your, your premise there of selective harvest. Yeah. So it's trying to kind of like take control of the dialogue, remind people why, well, actually you know, trophy hunting is a beautiful thing that should be celebrated. Um, agreed. Maybe we should change the, the wording a little bit for moving forward so people can better understand it. Yeah, just proving to people, like, because of this model of hunting, I mean, we we have built back populations that are higher than they've been in, you know, recorded history. And the thing that's cool is, and why I want to hunt sheep, and why, furthermore, I want to bow hunt sheep, is because on any level of hunting, whether you draw the tag, or whether you go to Alaska, or whether you're an Alaska resident, or whether you're on an unlimited hunt here in Montana, or whatever, like those rams have to be at a certain age class and a certain length. You know, they have to be either, um, you know, full curl or whatever it is, eight and a half years old or, or whatever, you know, they, they put on it. And so, and that isn't because Trophy Hunters Association of America got together and decided like, you know what, guys, I think that if anybody's going to shoot a sheep, it should look really good on their wall. And in order for it to look really good on their wall, it has to hit these minimums. And that's what we're going to do. Like, 
it, it has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with the continuation of the herd and, and taking care of, you know, taking the animals when they're right to be. No one speaks about when you get, I mean, whether it's bovine or elk or white tails or, or rhinoceroses, when you get an old male that's past breeding age, that no longer is, conti- you know, contributing to the gene pool, he's actually taking out younger males just he is. I mean, they, so they're, exactly. you know, that natural selection, we're kind of by hunting, we're, we're mitigating that and actually kind of improving the overall demographics of the herd. Exactly. And, and so, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm excited because, you know, sheep, uh, like I said, at its very basic level is very selective hunting and it's very recorded from state to state, you know very well kept track of and there's a reason for all that and i think because of all of that it's a it's a great hunt it's a great animal to use as um kind of the backstory for this story of selective hunting so that's that's what's next on the horizon that's an Um, exciting film yeah i'm excited to see the film so when you release that make sure to let us know we'd love to promoted on our socials as well. And of course, Dave and I will watch it. So it sounds like it's going to be really, really good. And, and I want to encourage everybody if they can, you know, go to your website and uh, watch your other videos as well. Cause I mean, you have some incredible films. I, the, the one that I was watching actually yesterday, you had this uh, bull elk and you know, this magpie on his back and he's not doing well after a long winter. That, I mean, that kind of stuff gets to you, you know, when you, when you see how cruel nature is and it's like, you know, that's, that's part of why we hunt, right? Like we want to selectively, like you say, selectively harvest those animals before they go through something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yep. That was a, that was a crazy deal. I'll never forget that. We, uh, I had just talked to the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation about working with me on this concept that I was calling project elk and i had just met with them at some uh at shot show in vegas actually and came home from that and i was feeling super stoked and energized because they were really interested in working with me and i had never worked with them before and um so i was like i'm gonna go out and document some elk on the winter range and see what i can get and so me and my buddy barrett ran out and uh found that bull and we had like three different cameras filming that, that poor thing. And we sat there all day and, you know, ended up filming him right to the point of just laying there, you know, um, not being able to move just a super sad sight. But I just, I remember thinking like, wow, you know, talk about having that feeling of being where you should be at, in life. You know, I was, I was stoked to put out this documentary on elk and, I wanted to go out and show people this side of, you know, wildlife and wildlife management that they had seen. And that first day out, we filmed that. I was like, wow, if that isn't a sign to continue pushing forward with this, I don't know what is. Yeah, it, it was powerful to me. I mean, it, living in the West, you see things, you know, I, I live out in the country, you see things like that and it's, it gets to you because you feel for that animal as a hunter or a fisherman, you know, you're just like, man, that really sucks, you know? Um, and you know, that magpie is jumping on his back and I'm just thinking to myself, I'm like, man, this is, this is rough. And this is really what nature will do to you. 
And uh, so I yeah. thought that was pretty powerful, and it really comes out in that. So I'm really excited to see your new film. It's going to be really good. Heck yeah, I'm excited to, to get it out there. Because, you know, the TV show really is the bread and butter of what I do. It's, uh, you know, what kind of drives everything and allows me to kind of put out these bigger messages. But, you know, my pride definitely comes in telling me bigger stories and, and working with organizations to help spread the the work they're doing and stuff like that. That's I really enjoy that side of it. Yeah. So real quick, like if people wanted to support and help out your cause and help with the filming or, you know, anything that you're doing with your cause, you know, how do they get involved? How can they maybe follow support those kind of things? Well, I mean, you know, I always kind of just, turn that back to trying to support a conservation organization in their area or something that's near and dear to their heart. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize what a, what a change they can make by doing just a little bit or giving a little bit of their time. You know, that's most of these organizations are fueled by volunteers and the more the merrier helps spread the message helps, make more projects happen and and that kind of thing so you know to support me really is in my opinion <laughs> to support all the the conservation organizations that are out there getting this work done and leading the charge for us yeah absolutely so i just want to caution everybody whatever organization that they are going to donate to and there's some phenomenal ones out there just there there are some not phenomenal ones out there i'm not going to name them they're definitely not conservation minded and not pro hunting but i would whatever organization you're going to donate to look at their you know kind of their their financial structure and where those nonprofits how they're spending their money cuz you know I'll, I'll say one rocky mountain elk foundation i mean the lion share of their money and their Time goes to conservation and and promoting that species mm-hmm. instead of somebody's pocket so just make sure that you're you're supporting good organizations. Yeah, that's a good that's sure. a good point. Yeah, and so th- we need to talk about one more of our sponsors here before we go, and I want to talk about bow spider a little bit. It sounds like you got to use a bow spider this year um, for packing a bow around. So tell me a little bit about that experience, Jason. Yeah, so I mean, I was introduced to the product at Total Archery Challenge, and it uh, it was pretty cool i mean obviously i had never used one before and could definitely see the benefits of it um obviously for just packing around on a 3d course it works super nice but outside of that as well i mean you know a lot of times when you're stopped and glassing or whatever you're trying to like pinch your bow between your legs or um you know whatever trying to balance it against the tree or keep keep your cam out of the dirt that kind of thing. So it's nice to be able to just clip it on, be hands-free, do your glassing, and then, you know, go from there. And furthermore, I ended up using one on the back uh, that I hooked behind the driver's seat of my truck as well. And I've kind of got this full medical kit that hangs down behind the back seat, but also like I was able to attach that attachment to the back of my seat. And so when I get in with my bow, I just hook it in there as well and it like basically just free floats there you know when i mm-hmm. take a turn it'll like swing one way and the other so it's uh 
that's awesome because I've always been this person that always didn't really like just throwing my bow down in the back seat with all the other stuff that I had back there. So yeah, it's been a uh, been sweet little handy addition to the arsenal. Yeah, it seems to be. I see a lot of people posting on social media. They really like using it behind the head headrest on the truck just because of the things you're talking about. And, you know, you kind of keep your bow from getting beat up and getting knocked out of its tuning and different things like that. And you talk about also glassing. That's, I think David would agree with you. That's probably one of the best uses is just being able to put it somewhere safe and you're not going to stick it in the dirt or bang it into a tree limb or something like that. Huh, David? You know, I had to, I hunted elk hunted a little bit this fall with some guys and I, I told them, I said, you know, I'm, I'm paid by the company to, to say that this is an awesome product <laughs> and you know, it's, it's kind of my job, but even if I didn't, man, it it sure makes elk hunting in September, climbing up and down, just, it makes it that much more enjoyable. Especially, sure. I'm sure Jason would agree with this too, those total archery challenges when you're hiking around and going from station to station, it's probably really nice. Yeah, exactly. And like I said, I'm always worried about sticking my cam down in the dirt. And so I'm always trying to balance it on the toe of my boot um, and then sort of like wedge it between my legs when I'm ranging or glassing or whatever. And that's awkward. So, yeah, no, it's, like I said, it's been, it's had a lot of sort of handy uses that you didn't really think about before. So yeah. heck yeah. Well, and if anybody's out there and they want to get the bow hunter in their life or the person who's into archery and just loves to go shooting you can go to bowspider.com you can pick up your own bow spider packing system right now just in time for the holidays so get out there and get it done i'm really close now <laughs> david's looking at me like yeah we're getting close so if you want to get one of those <laughs> go to bowspider.com get your order placed now or you know keep it in mind for maybe father's day or birthday too but jason i i want to say thank you from both david and i for coming on the show it's been a pleasure one of the coolest things and i say this a lot but one of the coolest things about this podcast guess is I get to meet people I would have never met before. And so it's been a pleasure speaking with you and hearing some of your story. And, you know, hopefully one of these days we can get you in the studio. That would be a lot of fun. Heck yeah. Well, I appreciate the opportunity and, and, uh, helping spread the message and giving me the chance to let everybody know what I've been up to. So appreciate it. And yeah, I would love to check out uh, the studio sometime. Yeah. How do people follow you if they wanted to follow you on Instagram or or Facebook or something like that? you know, how do they, you know, follow you or get a hold of you? Um, so both on Facebook and Instagram, my handle is Jason Matzinger Official. So if you search that, you can find it and then that'll kind of lead you to everything else from the YouTube channel, the, you know, the My Outdoor TV where we have all the TV shows and anything you want to see, you can kind of find from there or get a hold of me and I'll lead you in the right direction. Well, we, we really do appreciate it. We look forward to following along and seeing these new films coming out and we'll, uh, we'll catch you on the next one. Heck yeah. Well, thanks a bunch guys. So again, thank you for listening to this episode of Radcast Outdoors. One thing that really helps us out a bunch is if you can go to wherever you're listening to this from and download the episode. Um, that helps give us credit to, for our sponsors to know that you're actually listening to it. Share with your friends. Share with your friends. Uh, also rate the podcast and subscribe. And, you know, as always, we're going to come back with a lot more good content here on Radcast Outdoors.